You're listening to the ILLA podcast, the online home of lectures and conversations hosted by the Institute for International Law and the Humanities at the Melbourne Law School. Acknowledging the traditional owners on the land where I at least am, I know there are people from around Australia here, uh, I'm on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and uh, I pay my respects to their elders. Welcome to this part of this aspect of the Festival of Ideas. We're celebrating uh, the, uh, an anniversary of the Institute for International Law and the Humanities, which has been such an enriching part of life, intellectual life and social life at the University of Melbourne, but also around Australia and indeed internationally. So um, thanks very much to the director, Sandeep Bahuja, for suggesting this conversation and thank you all very much for coming along. Uh, before introducing Roland, allow me to say uh, what we'll do is I've got, uh, Roland and I have been discussing uh, some questions that we'll touch on, but we're really keen, obviously, within our hour to hear from you. If you have any questions, perhaps the most convenient thing might be, if you don't mind, well, either telling me through the chat or through the hand that you want to ask a question, and I can stop at any point to take those or we'll make sure we leave time at the end. <clears throat> so uh, it's fantastic to have uh, Roland Blacker with us today, all the way from lockdown-free Brisbane. So uh, sort of a bit inspirational <laughs> to see somebody who's, who's not in lockdown. Roland, as many of you know, is a professor at the University of Queensland, which has always been a bit of a powerhouse in international relations. And uh, he's a professor of international relations, also teaching uh, peace studies and political theory. And uh, Roland there directs a cross-disciplinary research program in the university on visual politics, which uh, brings together uh, over 20 academics from across the university. As you'll hear a bit more, uh, Roland is by origin Swiss, and uh, but he's studied uh, international relations in various places around the world. We'll try and touch on this. And also we'll touch on the fact that he worked for two years in a Swiss diplomatic mission uh, in the demilitarized zone in Korea. And he's also had um, uh, many visiting positions at a, a range of very interesting uh, universities in Asia and in Europe and indeed also in the United States. Um, I've been aware, before I actually met Roland, I, I was aware of his fantastic work on the uh, politics of aesthetics and uh, also his work <clears throat> together with his uh, co-author who I'm delighted to see here, Emma Hutchinson, who working on emotions in international politics. And um, I was particularly thrilled when uh, I noticed this, one of his latest publications, which is a fantastic edited collection called Visual Global Politics that Roland masterminded, which is uh, contains short chapters on a whole range of issues ranging from uh, celebrity to travel to witnessing to trauma. Uh, I just completely recommend it. It's published by Rutledge and it's just a brilliant, absolutely inspiring collection. And as we'll also hear, most recently, uh, Roland is uh, has got 
uh, a very interesting linkage grant uh, looking at the politics and ethics of visualising humanitarian crises. Uh, and I'm going to ask him a bit about that at the end. So, uh, Roland, welcome. We're thrilled to have you with us. Uh, can you just start, because I think people are always interested in this, uh, tell us a bit about your intellectual history. You know, where did you study? How did you end up through all those interesting places in Brisbane? And then also, if I can slip in a large question, well, no, let, let me just get you to do that before I go to intellectual influences. Well, first of all, thank you so much, Hilary, for both this extremely generous introduction and for the chance to be here with you and with everyone else. Thanks to Sundia and Annabelle as well. I feel very honoured to be uh, to be here today. You're the, one of the key centres of excellence in international law and international politics, so it's a great honour to have the chance to, to talk to everyone here. Uh, in terms of my background, uh, it's a little complicated. I grew up in Switzerland, as you said, Hilary, in many ways in a very working class uh, context. My parents ran a small barber shop. I never went to high school. I did um, an apprenticeship in a legal firm uh, uh, for three years. And an apprenticeship in Switzerland is somewhat more of an established tradition than it is here in Australia. So I worked in, in sort of property law, in inheritance law, in, in bankruptcy law. Then I did my mandatory military service in Switzerland. I drove, drove around tanks for a while in Switzerland and traveled then uh, after a few years work in India for a while and came back to Switzerland. I really wanted to kind of start to do something different. I always wanted to learn different languages, uh, interact with different cultures. So I basically started from scratch again in my mid-20s. I cashed in my savings. I moved to Paris to learn French. And then for some reason stumbled across universities which weren't even on my horizon in the context I grew up in and then managed to spend two years at a university in Paris studying international politics. And when I ran out of money, I managed to get this job in Korea is as part of a as a Swiss Army officer, as part of a, um, a commission that supervises the armistice agreement between North and South Korea. So I worked for two years in Panmunjom and it was fascinating, particularly the chance of traveling back and forth between North and South Korea. So when I finished that job, I stayed on in Korea to try to learn Korean at Yonsei University, and then ended up finishing my undergraduate degree in Toronto, at the University of Toronto. Then I did a master's degree at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. Then I had a kind of a short one-year stint at the Center for International Affairs at Harvard University to do some research on protest movements, which is something that interests me because I witnessed in Korea a mass protest against the authoritarian regime then of Chon Du Hwan. And then when I looked for uh, doing a PhD, I kind of the kind of work I did wasn't very welcomed in North America because I wasn't doing quantitative work. I was doing more work on alternative sources. So I ended up at the Australian National University uh, to do my PhD in Canberra for three years on transnational social movements. And then I had a very hard time at the job market. I was unemployed for two years, uh, in part because my work didn't fit into prevailing international relations sort of conventions. So I pretty much gave up on academia after two years and ended up getting a nine months teaching position in, back in Korea at Busan National University. And then after that, for some reason, UQ hired me uh, and I've been here now for about 20, 22 years and very much love it uh, in Queensland, in Australia. I've often been elsewhere on fellowships, but I feel very kind of um, 
at home here, we have fantastic students, fantastic staff. And that's sort of in a very super short way, the somewhat complicated journey that got me here. Very random in many ways, unplanned. I think it's really important, especially because I can see a lot of uh, newer uh colleagues here who have joined our conversation. And I, I think it's really important that uh, people see that often the path, the academic path is not a straightforward one. So I think that's a very inspiring thing to remind people that uh, it, it's, it's, it's possible to end up um, with uh, doing such fascinating things, even if the start is, is quite rocky. Uh, Roland, associated with that, what what would you say are uh, the given that very heterogeneous background? What what have been the uh, major intellectual influences on on your thought? Where where have you where have you drawn your influences to come up with this wonderful work that you're doing now? Look, in many ways, my kind of work has always been, to some extent, a struggle with my own discipline in the sense that international relations was traditionally a, a very traditional discipline uh, based basically on trying to understand the interaction between states and social scientific methods to, to study them. And I've always wanted to do things differently. I wanted to use different sources. Uh, so in many ways, my work draws as much on humanity sources than on social science sources, on literature, on art. And if I look at sort of the main influences, suppose it's sort of a mixture between, I draw on sort of, I guess what is usually called continental philosophical tradition, post-structuralism. Uh, I see myself as a feminist, so I draw on feminist theory quite a lot. I've done so for, for many decades. And because I've worked in Korea and I'm interested in sort of in, in sources outside of the Western traditions, I'm also drawing quite a bit on post-colonial and decolonial theory. But ultimately, I sort of in many ways, my research, I see research as sort of puzzle driven. And then I just try to find sources from wherever I want them, where I find them useful, independently of the label that is associated with them, whether it's in, in politics, in anthropology, in literature. I just try to use sources across a variety of, of, of disciplines to look at what I'm doing. Um, well, that's I think that's that's evident in uh, the way you write. I'll put up a link to a couple of pieces of Rollins in um, in a little while, which uh, I think that's a very nice way to formulate it. That it's it's puzzle driven, um, and uh, the way that you uh, use theory, I, I, I always find so so interesting. Well, we've we've got um, among our, our conversationalists today, um, we've got a, a number of of lawyers, international lawyers, and um, I'm wondering you you pointed out this, this early experience in a Swiss law firm. So you have, you know, something about this uh, odd area in which many of us are involved. So how do you look at, from the position of international relations, how do you look at legal systems uh, now? What, what yeah. is, is any of that early work, I know it was in the Swiss, really focusing the Swiss legal system, but... How does that affect your views of law today? Yeah, look, I mean, maybe it's best to start off with a big disclaimer that I'm not an expert on international law in that sense, because my experience with law was quite different. As I said, I had an education 
uh, in law, Swiss laws that dealt with bankruptcy law, with inheritance law, property law, and, and I was employed in some sense as part of the public service, the civil service in Switzerland. And one of the distinguishing features of that is that Switzerland is a very decentralized system. So a lot of the legal systems were quite particular to uh, the particular canton I was in, Zurich. And even if the law was national, basically the, the organization of the law, like the, uh, uh, bankruptcy law or, or, or property law, was very much cantonal. So, and that sort of clashed with my interest in, in, the, in, the, in the international. I always wanted to learn different languages. You know, I, I only started learning English and French in my 20s. I wanted to travel. I wanted to, to meet different people. So my first experience with law was one that constrained me to the canton of Zurich. And that's one why, in some sense, initially when I kind of left and started starting again from scratch, I wasn't looking for law. I was in some sense looking to escape that law that confined me to the canton of Zurich. And that's perhaps why over the next few decades, I didn't really focus on law when I studied international politics. I focused on culture and conflict and politics. And it's only then sort of in the last maybe 10, 15 years that I kind of find a, find a way of re-engaging law a little bit more. Um, not sure if that's of interest. I taught a, a master's class on ethics and human rights for uh, about a decade here at UQ. And I've done a few things. Obviously, we touched on on mostly on political sort of themes, given my background, on ethical and moral themes, but also covered the basics of, of international law. And for about a decade, I ran every year a hypothetical sort of uh, war crimes tribunal. Um, not sure if you... If, if you want me to sort of tell a bit. Well, what, yes, no, please, yeah. please talk about that. I, I, I'd be really interested. Yeah, I mean, look, you might be appalled given given your expertise uh, in the field. You might be appalled about how amateurish we went about. But what we usually did, it's, it's a fairly large, or it was a fairly large master's class of about 40 to 80 students a year. And uh, so each year we put someone else on trial, so to speak. And the, the students decided who to put on trial. So we actually started off first with some procedural ethics about how do we decide who to put on trial. So students made different suggestions. They voted on it. So over the years, we put, uh, you know, Omar al-Bashir on trial, Radovan Karacic, uh, Lindy England. We did Henry Kissinger. So we did a range of sort of hypothetical and real figures. And then the class sort of, you know, started off first. We had, we did that over about two months. We started off doing a session researching the background of the conflict, whether, you know, it's, it's Bosnia or the war in Iraq. And we did Lindy England as well. Um, and then we did a session on the legal background and the, on the Rome statue, on the history of war crimes tribunal, again, from a very sort of amateurish uh, position. And then we basically split the class up, about 40 to 80 students into different teams. So we had... Um, you know, we had someone playing the accused, someone playing witnesses. We had a prosecution team. We had a defense team. We had um, judges. We had jury. We had a press gallery. Um, so we had CNN. We had Fox News. We had, you know, the local press. We had security guards. And so after about two months of preparatory work, we then, at the end of the semester, went to the moot court at the UQ Law School and over three hours basically acted out uh, the entire kind of war crimes tribunal. So we done that for about 10 years every year with a different figure. We also did um, a Truth and Reconciliation Commission in a bit of a different sense. Uh, but all of this was a focus primarily on the politics because I don't have a legal background in that sense. And sometimes they had students with a legal background. They pitched in and gave us the expertise. Uh, but that's sort of an experience that worked very well. And I kind of had to stop it for, you know, for reasons that 
it just became too complicated given the way um, the way university and teaching has evolved in terms of regulating how we do things. Um, happy to explain if if that's of interest. So. Yeah, well, well, please, please do that. I was just also going to in, insert a mm-hmm. sort of a, a question there too, though. That <clears throat> I think international lawyers often think that um, international relations scholars overly romanticize the law. Like sometimes I've noticed um, international relations scholars will identify a problem and they'll discuss it. Then right at the end, they say, "And the way to solve this would be a new treaty." Whereas international lawyers perhaps because that's our bread and butter, we we perhaps tend to be slightly more sceptical about the value of international legal mechanisms to deal with problems. And I don't know if some of those issues would have emerged through uh, the, uh, the, the war crimes trial project, if I can call it that. Yeah, I mean, one of the issues, and I've just been reading your your work on, on on human rights rituals in that context, where you know we you very much go beyond the uh, yeah the legal framework to look at the politics of identity and emotions. And look, one of the things we discovered when running the, the the tribunal is that that so we acted it all out, and at the end, in some sense, there was a bit of a disappointment when we only ran it with a series of, of charges that the person was either guilty or not guilty. It was kind of like. That was it. And then we sort of said, why don't we find a way of sort of politicizing that a bit more? So we introduced kind of, again, in an amateur's way, not in a legal way, we introduced the jury. And the jury would then discuss the more kind of the less legal aspects, the more the, the gray zones, the moral things. So, for instance, we, we, we put on trial Lindy England. I'm not sure if everyone remembers Lindy England. She was one of the uh, the female soldiers at Abu Ghraib that was seen in, in in the torture photos. So we sort of, you know, the students wanted to put her on trial. And everyone started off assuming she was guilty because they saw the, the images. But then we did some background on Lindy England. We did some background on questions of gender, on, on hierarchy in the U.S. Army. And then everything became a lot more blurred when they realized she was part of a, a kind of machinery that was very hierarchical, that was very gendered. And so that's sort of where we had then a second instance where we discussed, in addition to the legal framework, the, the kind of politics that surrounded the, the, the gray zone, the gendered aspects, the questions of power, uh, uh, and so on. And the students always liked that experience. As I often had a class of about 80 students, it was a pretty big thing to do. But the reasons why I stopped this basically, in order to make it meaningful, I had to mark my students uh, to do that because we, this was a big chunk of the, of the work during the semester. And I had to do a lot of sort of interpretation with it because the students had different tasks. Some of them would do a lot of background research from the case. You know, Some would have a major role in the, the, the tribunal. They would play the witness. Some had minor roles, so I asked them to do a reflection essay. So I made a judgment basically about that each of them had to do more or less the same amount of work. I marked them on it. But we have, meanwhile, our university kind of regulations are so standardized that it would be extremely difficult to now establish an electronic course profile that that masks out, that maps out these tasks and does justice. And then I just sort of found it was too complicated to, to run it in that sense. So... Well, that's 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 a very um, sobering reflection on modern university practices. Mm. Um, moving then, Roland, to some of your work, you uh, your your book. I think it was perhaps published just over a decade ago on aesthetics and world politics. Can you uh, can you sort of tell us a story of how you came to 
look at aesthetics. And then, of course, your more recent work has focused in particular on visuality. But I'm, I'm very interested in uh, the path that took you to your work on initially aesthetics and international politics. Look, as I briefly flagged earlier, in many ways, the work on aesthetic that I've done was a reaction to the discipline, um, I mean, international relations, which... Uh, traditionally, at least 20, 30 years ago, when it started off, was quite conventional in the sense that that um, it revolved around the study of interstate interactions, war, conflict, to some extent, economic interactions, and around social scientific methods. And that was fairly strongly policed. That's one reason why I had a hard time at the job market. And I've always wanted to kind of explore alternative insights into politics. And, and so I started sort of, for instance, using literature to look at, at, at politics to see how we can rethink uh, uh, key political issues around development, around authoritarianism, around diplomacy, by using literary sources. So I drew on Paul Ceylon, for instance, on Nana Akhmatova, Kohun, Papal um, Neruda, to rethink the, the kind of dilemmas we, we look at. And as a result, I started to read into aesthetic theory, into sort of theories that basically look at the politics of representation, of how we look at the world is inherently kind of um, political, and in many ways, uh, uh, art forms, whether it's literature, art, uh, uh, or even sort of sound music, can help us really broaden the tools we have to look at the world, uh, in part because many of the key political issues today, from, from conflict to inequality, I think they can really be understood and addressed only if we draw on whatever sources we have to look at things, not just social science methods, but basically methods that are kind of explored in a whole range of different disciplines. Um, and that's why I tried to read in, you know, in in literature, in anthropology, in 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 history, in in a range of in art history, in a range of different disciplines. Yeah. So can you for, for those of um the, the the group who are not familiar with that, can you can you sketch out one example of the way that you used these things to illuminate international problems? Okay. Look, one example might be the work I've done on, on Paul Ceylon, who is a, a, a German poet, who uh, a Jewish poet, who basically dealt with the fact that uh, after the Holocaust, it, the German language was so implicated with what happened that it became very difficult to actually think, speak critically about the past because the, the language was implicated with the Nazi regime. So in many ways, Ceylon's poetry was all about stretching language so that we can find a different, langu a different language, a different way of speaking about the past that, that honors victims, that brings out the voices of victims. So I used that to look at how politics or understanding politics is not just about understanding facts and, and trade patterns and diplomatic patterns, but also about how we speak about things, about, about language, about how the language we use to understand world politics is very much implicated in the existing patterns that we have. Uh, there's a very famous uh, essay by Carol Cohen called Sex and Death in the World of Defense, uh, Defense Intellectuals, where she kind of looks at how uh, in part, our uh, military establishment, and it might be very pertinent now with, with the, the failure to deal with Afghanistan, um, is also implicated in the way we speak about the world, in the way we, we use technological language to justify certain political mechanisms. Um, 
So instead, I wanted to show that to think more critically about the world and world of world politics, we also have to think more critically about language, about about uh, the gender dimensions of language. One could use the, the racial example of language to to find more inclusive ways of thinking and about the world and conducting politics. Uh, well, that's that's fascinating. I think um, your compatriot, the the German art, uh, well, not well, Swiss. He's he's German. Uh, Anton Kiefer has has um, been inspired by Ceylon's poetry, I think, in a number of, of his works more recently. So it's a very interesting connection with those uh, with those things. I just want to say uh, to everyone, if, if uh, I could, I'll keep asking uh, Holland questions, but uh, there's, this is designed as a, a group conversation, if you're willing. So anybody who has questions, please, as I say, perhaps flag in the chat if you'd want to ask one, and I'll cheerfully seed my uh, <laughs> my set of questions to um, hand over to you. So please, please consider this an invitation to intervene at any point. Um, Roland, then, then, okay, from that initial work on aesthetics, what, what has brought you more recently to uh, look particularly at visuality? In many ways, I've, I've uh, maybe that's something for more more junior academics here. In many ways, my academic work has always been about where are my passions and how can I follow my passions. I figured life is too short to do things that that kind of people tell me I should do and I don't feel passionate about. And I've always had a passion for literature. I always had a passion for visual, for photography, for instance. So I figured. Uh, want to kind of combine my my personal passion about photography with with my academic work. So from the work I've done in aesthetics, I then developed much more of an interest in the visual in particular, which is only one aspect of, of the aesthetic. And I moved in some sense from looking at the visual, the aesthetic as an alternative source of insight to also looking at the actual politics that's played by, by visuality. And this visuality here, I don't mean just... Uh, just photographs or film. There's, of course, a lot of sort of aspects of politics in that, from how Hollywood films, you know, shape collective values to um, propaganda videos by Islamic states, but also, you know, the politics of maps, of cartoons, uh, the issue of drones now is very pertinent, of, of surveillance cameras, uh, the issue of satellites, how they shape politics, uh, but also the issue of, of visual artifacts and performances, you know, the role played by national monuments, by military parades, even by fashion. So that's these are all sort of themes that that pop up in the book you mentioned on, on, on visual global politics. And, and in some sense, uh, it dawned me early on to look at these issues uh, I don't have the expertise to look at that across all these fields. They're, they're so complex, and that's why I ended up sort of drawing on, a, on about 50 different collaborators to, to look at all these complex various aspects of the visual uh, today in which it, it functions today uh, and the kind of backgrounds, the diverse backgrounds we need to understand them. So, so in many ways, that's sort of behind my interest in, in, in the visual. It's also behind what I've sort of established here at UQ, the, the visual politics program, where we try to kind of establish, in some sense, a supportive framework for people to collaborate uh, from across the university and, and nationally, internationally on different aspects of visuality. So, Well, to think of a, a specific focus of your work, and I'll, I'll put a link to the article in um, the chat, but you've, you've written a, a very interesting piece on visual 
uh, putting that there for people to look at, uh, visual autoethnography. And uh, this is a, um, a very interesting piece that draws on your own photographs. Uh, so I wonder if you could, so if people are interested, the, the link is is there in the chat, but could you, uh, I don't think anybody will have had a chance to read it and to absorb it uh, uh, during this time, but could you tell us a bit about it? And um, uh, I mean, the issues of autoethnography, I think, which I, I can, I know there are, there are people in this conversation who are very interested in that and, and what you, what you observed. I've had the advantage of being able to look uh, quickly at that paper in advance. And um, one thing that struck me is that you, you, you reflect, well, things you see now in your set of photographs that you didn't see certainly when you were taking them. But anyway, tell, tell us more about this, this fascinating project. Yeah, thanks, Hilary. I mean, look, I've had an interest in autoethnography for a while. I, I did an article about a dozen years ago with my colleague, Morgan Brigg, and that too, in many ways, was a reaction to my discipline where... Uh, I come from a very positivist discipline where, you know, we, we use positivist methods and we sort of found absurd that that our positionality is written out of research. You know, we, many scholars in my field present research as if they had nothing to do with, uh, with constructing the data, with developing it. So we went a step further and sort of said, look, not only is our research revolving around our choices and so on, but it actually we can make active use of our own experiences. And then sort of I tried to push it a bit further to see how we can make use of our own photographs and use them to reflect on our positionality and, and on the political problems. So what I've done, as I flagged earlier on, I spent two years working as a Swiss uh, army officer diplomat in the Korean DMZ. That was over 30 years ago in the mid-1980s. So, and I took a lot of photographs back then. That was one of my passions. So I thought I'll do something with them. So I digitalized these photographs, I looked at them and I wanted to use them to kind of reflect on the politics of security in Korea, on the constant sort of tensions between North and South Korea. And one of the things that struck me initially when I looked at my photographs, I looked through all the photographs, and again, I've mentioned I'm a feminist scholar. I looked at the photographs and the first thing that struck me, there's only men in these photographs. You know, every single photograph in the DC, and they're mostly militarized in uniform. I was in uniform. They're only men. Now, that's not necessarily surprising. It's a, it's a, a militarized zone. But what I thought was surprising is when I, when I arrived in Korea in the mid-1980s, I noticed everything about Korea. I noticed, you know, the, the difference between North and South Korea, which, which is very stark. I noticed the, the cultural differences between the Koreans, the Chinese, the Americans, and so on. Absolutely everything, except I didn't notice the gender element. You know, it didn't even occur to me because I grew up in Switzerland, a very patriarchal society. Women in some cantons only got the vote in the 1970s when I was a teenager. You know, I was drafted into the army, very gendered experience as I was told how to, to shoot, how to drive a tank, very gendered. So, so I grew up in this environment, uh, completely gender unaware. And, and to me, that sort of allowed me in some sense, I think, to, to theorize or to conceptualize how questions of masculinity, but also questions of militarizations are absolutely essential to understanding the security situation in Korea. Not just why it's such a securitized uh, environment, but also why often the solutions fail because the solutions too are often based on very militarized understanding of the world. And 
that's sort of part of of the discursive entrenchment of 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 gender of of gender roles of militarized role is just so deeply entrenched and so powerful because often we don't even realize that anymore and in that sense, visual ethnography allowed me the confrontation with my photographs and my own experience over 30 years, I think, allowed me to sort of reflect on that in a bit, a bit more critically. Um, that's what I at least tried to do in that article, to bring out uh, that aspect a bit more. Um, I also thought to sort of problematize the role of North Korea a little bit, but that's a different issue. That's I'm not sure if you want me to kind of elaborate that, that as well. I don't know if it's going to help, but the, the, I mean, you, you make the point uh, in your article uh, that it's it was really um, uh, one of the lessons you take from the uh, autoethnography is the way that the imagery really restricts our ability to see North Korea as anything other than a rogue state. It has to be a rogue state. Mm -hmm. I just wonder if you could tease that out a little. Yeah. I mean, look, North Korea obviously is, is, has been over the last several decades has been one of the key sources of conflict in the North East Asian region. And, and we have a very particular image of North Korea as a, a rogue state, obviously highly problematic, and it is highly problematic, uh, massive human rights abuses, uh, um, nuclear ambitions in terms of developing nuclear weapons. So, so very problematic. But, but my experience in many ways is that North Korea is a lot more complex and North Korea doesn't exist in a vacuum. North Korea often actually reacts to the outside world. Uh, so in some sense, I wanted to use my experiences in North Korea and my photographs in North Korea to, to, to challenge the prevailing image we have uh, of North Korea. In an essay, I called it once, a rogue is a rogue is a rogue, in the sense that our image of North Korea as a rogue is so deeply entrenched that we can't see it as anything else. Literally, we can only see it as that. And that's problematic. Uh, uh, for instance, my photographs of North Korea, when I look at them today, they show very much everyday life. They show people going on, going upon, uh, going on with their business um, like, like many others. It is not in that sense a completely unusual place. And I think if we look politically at that, we can see that North Korea often reacts very specifically to, to, to Western initiatives. And if we fail to see North Korea as sort of reacting to the world, we make the mistake of assuming it's going to do the same anyway, no matter what we do. And then we rely on conventional methods, which is usually either sanctions or threats uh, to kind of force it into submission. And historically, they haven't worked at all. They have been extremely ineffective. Like sanctions have had absolutely no effect on North Korea. It just made the population suffer. The regime is still in power. Threats, North Korea loves threats. You know, it uses them to legitimize its authoritarian regime. Uh, and again, if, if, if we see North Korea only as a rogue, we then really fail to see how we can develop policies that are more effective, more nuanced, and perhaps lead to alternative kind of uh, uh, options. Um, that's why this combination of sort of a, a very gendered militarized discourse with the failure to see North Korea in its, in its interactive dimensions has really boxed us in in a quite problematic way in North Korea, I, I believe, in terms of the policies towards North Korea. Right. Well, thank you. We've, we've, uh, we've got two terrific questions um, in, in, in the chat. Maybe, uh, Valeria, if you don't mind, if, 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 will, you, will you just turn on your microphone and camera if you're willing or let me know if, you're, if, if you can't for one reason, if you're out walking or something, and perhaps ask the question directly. Um, perhaps 
Well, if you're unable to do so, I think uh, let, me, let me just read out um, the question there for, for those of you who can't see it. So there's a warm thanks from Valeria, one of our wonderful PhD cohort, uh, who's in lockdown-free Adelaide. We won't rub that in. Um, but uh, the question is for you, Roland, when you have an idea you want to explore or pursue, how much do you follow your aesthetic intuition? For example, you see an image. Is there something that tells you to follow it or how to begin to work, think with it? Look, I think in terms of how I follow research, I... Uh, I use Ian Shapiro's kind of idea. It's, it's a political theorist in my field who, who opposed uh, what he kind of thought was the problem in international relations, that it's very often uh, methods-driven or even theory-driven. And he advocated basically uh, research that's being driven by, by puzzles, by, by a puzzle in the real world, but something that you find in the real world that is really, you know, either you don't understand it or you, 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 you're agonizing about it. You don't, you don't know yet what the solutions are. So I start my research always with puzzles. And then I sort of try to figure out what is the best, most innovative way I can understand that puzzle. Uh, is it through, you know, historical analysis? Is it by using images? Is it by uh, exploring the role of emotions as I do? But I start research in that sense always with the puzzle that I try to understand. Uh, I, I think, uh, I don't know if I'm pushing Valeria's question into waters that she um, wouldn't want to push, but but I also take her to be asking, what about um, is your research ever image-driven? So you simply, you see an image or um, some form of well, visual imagery, and then that, it's a puzzle about that, that something sort of within you tells you to sort of pursue that. So is that something that you recognize or, or or is it more you're saying it's puzzle driven and the puzzle typically is not an aesthetic puzzle but I don't know if I've overinterpreted. Absolutely no I think it can be both I'm not sure if, you, if this is the moment where you want to kind of talk about that the linkage project that I've sort of just about uh, to start is very much uh, a project that's based on a puzzle that's a visual puzzle you know it's a it's a project that tries to find more ethical ways of visualizing humanitarian crisis. And it starts, the problem starts with the images in the sense that we know that visuals are, play a hugely important role in kind of drawing international awareness of crisis, whether it's a genocide or a famine, you know, we often see visual representations of that crisis and they make us do something politically. You know, in Afghanistan at the moment, the visuals coming out of Afghanistan, they really move people around the world. So we sort of start with that knowledge, but we also know that that visuals are problematic. The, the way we visualize humanitarian crisis is quite problematic. We have the issue of compassion fatigue that people talk about. We have the issue of what people call um, negativity bias, that we often focus on negative things, on violence, and, and we have a distorted view of the world. We also know that, that many kind of visual patterns of crisis are very neocolonial. They depict victims in the global south as, as passive in the very gendered way, uh, as, as basically dependent on Western help, very neo-colonial. So we know all that, but the puzzle is that a lot of non-governmental organizations we talk to and we, we, we collaborate with the Red Cross, with MSF, with the ICOC, they're all aware of these problems. They know that these images are highly stereotypical, highly problematic, but they are very reluctant to, to depart from them because they know these are the images that are very effective in fundraising campaigns. You know, if, if, if people see a, 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 an image of a starving woman and child, people donate money. 
Yeah, so they, they they know these images are problematic, but they really really need them to to basically do effective fundraising, um, and that's where we sort of that's a puzzle we're stuck in, and we have to find a way out. I and mean, ultimately, the project tries to address that. It tries to find alternative visualizations of crisis, more ethical images, more respectful images, uh, more images in grounded in in local kind of contexts that can at the same time still evoke empathy in viewers uh, and uh, a kind of a, a capacity to 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 feel for others to, to and in that sense also to donate so we we have a whole team to work on that from scholars who look at sort of uh, questions of race and and alternative images but also um, quantitatively trained social scientists uh, and psychologists who who empirically study how people react to images to kind of test really how how people uh, react to alternative versus normal images. And happy to explore the project in more detail if that's of interest. But that's kind of the the the, the visual puzzle that lies at the very at the very beginning of the project, if you want. Well, let's come back to that. I would just also say in response, Valeria, to your to your question that I I, I think it's. Um, I think following one's uh, aesthetic intuition is really important. And, and sometimes, like, I, I can recall coming back to Anselm Kiefer, seeing a, a retrospective of his work in London and being finding a, a couple of his um, installations in vitrines called uh, A New Law of War. And I didn't understand really what he was doing or his imagery, but I so blown away by his work and that took me actually on a path uh, that still sort of fascinates me. So I, I, I think uh, I'm a great believer in academic intuition and think that um, uh, if, if, if I can just jump in with a little story because it involves a very famous international lawyer who has recently died, James Crawford, our, our fantastic colleague, and I remember when I was a very junior academic um, consulting James, who was just endlessly generous in his advice, would always, and this was when I was a, a lecturer at Melbourne Law School many, many moons ago, and uh, I, we were told we have to put in for an ARC grant and nobody would have had ideas like Rollins then. And so I contacted James and said, I have to put an ARC grant, you know, what can you recommend anything? And he sent back a topic called joint state action in international law. That was just this topic. And uh, I just thought, okay, the great James Crawford has spoken. I better pursue this topic. And uh, I remember that was a research project. I think that's been, that was foolish. In other words, to sort of borrow an idea from this great figure. Um, my heart was never in it. And I recently, when I was moving, came across all the notes and the stuff from that project. And I just thought, oh, it never really went anywhere. And um, so I would say go, go for intuition every time. We have, we have another really interesting question, Roland, in, in, in the chat. And um, it's how might you overcome the tensions that could exist between what the researcher interprets from visual representations against those interpreted by the intended or unintended audience. And that's from Ning Zheng Shi. Um, so that, I don't know if that connects with your linkage program uh, project, but it's a really interesting question. 
How do you deal with those yep. tensions? Maybe first a couple of extra marks on on your reflections on Kiefer, Hillary, and, and absolutely with you. I think in many ways, what that's what I was trying to say before is, to me, one of the key things in academia is to follow one's passion. And that uh, entails also, I guess, sometimes following intuition. When you feel like you're on the right track and you're not entirely sure, you get inspired by, by a work of art or by something else to kind of follow that and trust you yourself rather than do what you're meant to do based on established conventions and so on. That's not easy to do, but I think that's that's ultimately very, uh, very important. In terms of the, the second question, in terms of how uh, one's interpretation versus others, that's, of course, one of the key things. And 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 that's the a problem I tried to deal with initially. You know, I come from, as I've mentioned, from a post-structural background. Um, I use interpretive methods to to look at at the world, so including the interpretation of images. I use discourse analysis. I use semiotics. You know, I use autoethnography. That's my background. But at some stage, I got to the point where I realized, look, ultimately, I can do a lot of things with that. Very sophisticated works, but it's always, in some sense, my interpretation, and there is limited things I can say about the actual impact of images, the, the the impact that they have on the world. And that's one of the, one of the really, really, I think, very tricky, very difficult questions in visual research is what's the impact of images? Because images don't usually have a, a causal impact. You know, we can't say this image of Afghanistan at the moment causes this kind of policy development. And yet, images do play a certain role. They have an impact. It's clearly that they matter. So the question is how to understand impact. Inference of images is quite tricky on, on others. And that's when I started collaborating with other scholars, including scholars who do more quantitative work, who who do, for instance, surveys. Uh, that's We have two scholars, Cassandra Chapman and, and Matthew Hornsey in our team, who are quantitatively trained social psychologists, and they do mass surveys of how, for instance, people respond to images. So we, in our project, we, we give them an alternative set of images, you know, stereotypical images of crisis. And we also give another group sort of more alternative images, more ethical images that we think to then see how people respond differently, how they feel, what kind of emotions they have, whether they feel empathy, fear, anger, how likely they would be to donate money, for instance, for a certain cause, to kind of see beyond my own interpretation, beyond our interpretation, to see how other people respond to images. And and these are always kind of limited, uh, uh, um, there's limited things we can say, you know, there's no definitive kind of measurement, but it's a different way of understanding the images that goes beyond uh, one's own kind of way of reading images. Um. Great. Um, I just now, as we're on the home stretch of our interview, just really encourage anybody who doesn't want to put the question in the chat but who'd like to raise their hand. Um, More than happy to, to embark on a dialogue or to kind of just uh, engage with your own work. Um, well, I, I, I still have some more questions for you, um, Rob. Um, it, it, it was, I guess, on your work with Emma Hutchison, who uh, the uh, work on emotions and uh, international politics. So, again, I, I know there are a number of people here who um, work on aspects of the uh, emotions, perhaps not being the full focus of their work, but who touch on it. Can you tell us um, about, about some of your work, about the work that's done on emotions in 
politics. Obviously, that's that's linked to imagery. But uh, yeah, so any, tell us about some of your work in that area. I mean, as I said, Emma is a far more of an expert than I am on on the politics of emotions. Uh, I got to emotions uh, primarily through images. About fifteen years ago, uh, I started to analyze image more systematically, and then I realized there's no way I can understand the politics of images without having a better grasp of the role of emotions. In a sense, that a lot of images around the world that are political are very emotional. Again, if you look at Afghanistan at the moment, the images we see are deeply emotional and we can't sort of understand them without emotions. And there's also something really quite specific about, about how images are emotional in the sense that, you know, you would often see these warnings before video clips that uh, very emotional images are going to come. They might, they might stress you, the images of death, uh, and, and you shouldn't watch if you feel like this is disturbing you. We never get that with words. We never read a book and it says, warning, very emotional words will follow. You might be being distressed. So there's something about the images that are highly emotional. So I got to start doing work, and that was mostly together with Emma in collaboration, on the ball of emotions in international politics. And again, I come back to being located in a discipline that's quite conventional. Uh, traditionally, emotions really didn't play a particular important role. Uh, most of the models in political science, they revolve around the assumptions that actors, whether it's individual or states, they act more or less in, in kind of rational manners. They make cost-benefit analysis, and a lot of the models we have are based on this assumption. So emotions uh, don't fit in. So we try to challenge that in, in, in two kind of particular ways. I mean, one of them is to kind of uh, challenge the notion that emotions are these irrational things. You know, and that, and so we looked actually how there's a lot of literature in, in neuroscience, in feminist theory, in philosophy, in sociology, and so on, that looks at how emotions and reason are inherently linked. So we don't really have the capacity to reason without emotions being involved. Uh, some scholars call it affect, the kind of pre-conscious emotions we have. So, so, so we can't really look at the world through purely rational lenses, our emotional attitudes. And again, to come back to questions of gender and, and our conditioning, the way we grow up, that's inevitably part of how we reason about the world. And the other aspect is that emotions have traditionally been seen as being individual things that are linked to our bodies. You know, we, we feel we have emotions in our body and we wanted to show um, and explore how emotions are actually collective things. They're part of our social world, they're part of our political world. So we looked at uh, together in a special issue of international theory, we looked at basically the processes through which individual emotions become collective, how they circulate. And we've come here primarily to look at questions of representations, uh, uh, that is questions of visuals, but also narratives, stories, the kind of the ways through which certain kind of emotions circulate around the world. Um, um, by, for instance, you know, at the, at the moment, the emotions around the situation in Afghanistan, they circulate through media images, through media narratives. And we, we have a collective sort of sense of, of uh, solidarity, grief, anger that's emerging, that's not just linked to individual bodies, but there's a collective dimension to this uh, link to how we represent the conflict, how we represent crisis, how we visually, verbally represent it. And these are part of our collective emotions that are very much part of how we conduct politics, how we how we design our response to, to the intervention, to refugee policies, to accommodating uh, Afghan refugees. I think that we can't take the emotions out of this equation, basically. Thank you. Now, uh, Jenna, I know you've just taken down your hand, but you did have your hand up for a little while. I wonder, 
would you uh, would you be willing to ask your question? So welcome, welcome, Jenna. Thank you. I did. I just I did note that we were running out of time, so I'll ask very quickly. Um, I I appreciate this conversation. It's been really very interesting um, uh, to listen to. Uh, Roland, I've gone back to your article um, from Millennium from 2017 many times where you talk about your own sort of uh, early journey and in getting into academia. You've reflected on this in a number of points throughout this conversation about working in a very conservative discipline, but trying to do some uh, very creative work and also doing interdisciplinary work. Uh, do you have any insights on how or strategies on how you've navigated this in terms of convincing others um, either to hire you, to work with you, funders to employ your, re to do your research, when there is a lot of sort of push, um, again, to do quantitative work, um, that, that's sort of even in my field, uh, which is gender studies, um, to do, to go back towards to quantitative stuff um, and to get money from, from funders, especially in, in Australian universities, and they, they don't like um, sort of this more complex um, research a lot of times and they, they I, I also have experienced all the pushback on the interdisciplinary side so any insights that you can offer I would be vastly uh, or greatly appreciative. Roland and also if I can just jump in just before you um, ask that question I'm going to combine it in the interest of time with one that Danish Sheikh has put in the chat but I might ask Danish to pose it himself if he's willing and able to do so. Thank you. So uh, the floor is yours, Danish. Um, yeah, I won't expand on that too much, but I, I, I was just kind of curious because um, when we talk about cultivating a critical positionality, which is something that feminist theory, critical race theory, queer theory practitioners have been doing for a while now. Uh, and I'm just curious about how, how different that is from specifically identifying autoethnography as a method. And I'm just wondering if you have thoughts on that. And I'm happy to expand that. But yeah. Can you say again a bit more what you mean different from what kind of practice? I didn't get the first part of your question or easy comment. Sorry, I just asked you that. Um, yeah, so often when we, so if I am, say, a feminist legal practitioner, um, I will come from this position that the personal is political, the personal is theoretical, therefore the theoretical is political. So the sense that I make sense of the world from my specific positionality. And I'm just curious about how you see that as different from autoethnography mm -hmm. method for interpreting the world. Thank well, you. Both great questions. And now, uh, Roland, you have the tough task of <laughs> responding. Of summarizing that. Yes, that's they're, they're two really, really good and really important questions. And there's I don't have any easy answers. I mean, to 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 Jenna about about the struggle. Um yeah, look, I haven't had it easier. That I almost gave up on academia because I couldn't get a job after my PhD. International relations was a very conservative discipline. Um, I just, you know, even if I had publications out, it was very hard to to, to break in. I, for about ten years, I applied every year to the ASC. I failed every year. So, so, so that wasn't an easy uh, struggle. But at the same time, I think disciplines shift, and uh, I found international relations has become a much more open discipline in the last few years. There, there's still always disciplinings. There's still always kind of boundaries. 
But ultimately, to me, it comes down to the fact that, and, and things are particularly difficult for early career scholars. You know, if you don't have a, a secure job, it's a lot more difficult to take risks than if you're in a, in a tenure-track position, you're able to do more risks. So, so being early on, it's it's not easy to kind of do alternative work, knowing exactly that the discipline rewards certain kind of behaviors. So there's a compromise inevitably there, but ultimately, to me, it's it's research is also about following one's passions, and as Hillary said, it's about sort of following intuition. And if your passion leads you to a certain direction, uh, I find it very hard to do something else because the passion usually comes through in a in a text in the form of research. So I don't have any easy answers for it, Jenna, but I'm happy to correspond and to or to have a private conversation if you like around that and share some of my 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 experiences with that. Um, then to the question of uh, autoethnography, I think one of the big dangers of autoethnography is self-indulgence. Uh, and that is, you know, uh, that person writes just about the experiences and it's just about the experiences. And that to me is kind of, um, there's a difference between autoethnography and, and autobiography in a sense. And autobiography is about the person's experience and autoethnography is about using a person's experience to, to engage a political topic. And that's why I'm, a, I'm a, again, a big fan of puzzle-driven research. If you have a research puzzle that's there that you want to address, uh, then you can use, in some sense, any kind of method to engage that puzzle. And if it helps you understand, address that puzzle, it's legitimate. So if you can use your own experiences to illuminate that puzzle and it's, it becomes relevant, then I think it's a legitimate form of insight. And by answering that question, you can also figure out whether it's actually is illuminating or whether it's just you telling your own story about things that are ultimately not connected to 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 the topic so again it it's not an easy um topic it's also again a form of research that's often seen as alternative that you know many people probably think is not pertinent to a certain field uh, but to me that's if one does innovative research and puzzle driven research there's no reason why one could use a range of methods including autoethnography to kind of engage the issues at stake mm. thank you roland and I, irene who's saying she's got low bandwidth has um, uh, a question perhaps we could end with, which is besides um, enjoyment, uh, and I, I take it that she's referring to your course, the uh, the one with the, the mock trials, um, what do you hope your students take from the course to translate into the real world? That's, I guess, the big question in teaching. I mean, I, I always hope that my students walk away from the course and 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 it's changed them. Uh, for instance, I teach at the moment, I teach a large undergraduate course in international relations theories. I have about 200 students. So we go through the various theories to, to look at them. And, and we start off actually with feminism and post-colonialism. That's the first two theories we look at. In that course, for instance, what I want like my students to do, I want to I want them to learn how to look at the world through different lenses. Like in all my assignments, I ask them at least to compare two different theories so they can look at the world through a realist lens, through a feminist lens, through a decolonial lens, through a post-structural lens, in order basically to gain more empathy and to walk away and say, look, I look... If I look at the conflict in, in in Afghanistan today, for instance, I look at it differently than I would have done so before because, because I can see the gender dimension. I can see the colonial legacy. I can see how realist policies work out in this and that context. So 
So it's ultimately to help students to to look at the world somewhat differently, to perhaps unlearn what they already know, and 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 uh, sometimes that means they get a headache, they agonize, and 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 if they say they get a headache, I say this is good, this is the right way. It means you kind of get pushed out sort of outside your comfort zone, and you can find a different way of looking at the world. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, look, I'm afraid it's time uh, to end, and I just say to I noticed there are one or two more questions and I apologise that we can't get to those, but I'm sure Roland, as you can perhaps detect, is endlessly generous and uh, perhaps you could correspond with him directly. You could put those questions to him directly. I I, I know you will get an answer. Uh, But I I think it's, uh, Roland, it's so kind of you to participate. I mean, the Institute for International Law and the Humanities uh, uh, which is was set up by Anne Orford 15 years ago and then its director was Diane Otto and now we have Sandhya Pahuja. Uh, we've had three fantastic and quite different directors of the Institute, but its very purpose is there to widen um, international law away from its, like international relations perhaps, its very positivist foundations and to get it to engage with uh, a broader Suite of interests, and I think you've 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 really beautifully illustrated the how your particular it's a it's a fascinating idiosyncratic route through the academic life. Um, how how enriching those engagements have been. So I think you've you've modelled in one sense uh, the promise of an institute like uh, like our one here, of which of which we're so proud. So. Many thanks indeed again, and thank you to our wonderful audience and for the fantastic questions. So uh, look forward to seeing you at the next. You've been listening to the ILLA podcast. To find out more, go to soundcloud.com forward slash ILLA podcast. That's double I-L-A-H podcast.